guys, and happy Easter. Christ is risen. Um, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be speaking uh, for the next little while on that passage. And um, we have some young people in the room today called the Fusion Group. Fusion, give me a wave. Yes, hello. Any more Fusion? Now, you've got a sheet. And what I want you to do, if you've got a pen, is just number the questions from the top. One, two, three, four, five. From the top down, there's five questions, and I'm going to try and refer to them during this sermon to thread that in um, to keep you on your toes. Uh, those of you who uh, aren't here regularly, we are preaching through a series on the book of Exodus, but today we're, we're pausing and spending our time thinking about Easter and about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm going to read a bit more from that passage, so do turn up your Bibles if you've closed them. Uh, to page 1157, page 1157, this is 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll pick up at verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual the first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for these words. At the moment, some of them are difficult for us. We pray now that you would open our minds to see and understand and open our hearts to receive and be excited and motivated and warmed by your love and your future. Amen. Why is Easter such a big deal for Christians? It's not about the chocolate eggs. I know it is for some of you. Why is Easter such a big deal for Christians? It's because of hope. It's because of hope. So let me ask, what are you hoping for today? We all need hope. It's one of the most powerful forces in our lives. People have accomplished great and remarkable things because they had strong hope. People have endured terrible things and endured great pain because they were sustained by hope. But when hope is crushed, the human spirit is like a flame that flickers and then goes out. We all need hope. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick, but longing fulfilled is a tree of life. We all need hope, including those whose lives appear to be quite sorted, people who look fine, people who are quite prosperous, people who are secure on the outside. They need hope. An actress called Helen Monks, young actress, gave an interview and she said, all of my friends 
who've graduated from university are just so depressed. They're actually people who come from privileged backgrounds and they've got enough support and money and love. In theory, you should be doing all right. But there's so little hope for the future. Everybody feels so trapped. I think she's put her finger on something. There is so little hope. Now, some of you might be thinking, I don't really have a problem with this. I'm all right, thanks. I don't really need Christianity. I don't really need Easter. Let me ask, why do you drink so much? What is it that you're numbing? Or, why do you spend so much time looking in the mirror? Creating a face that makes you look amazing and then putting pictures of yourself on social media. Why are you really doing it? You're hoping for something. What is it? Or, why are you in bits when certain things don't succeed, when you fail to reach something or other? It might be getting an A star or a first class in your degree studies. It might be trying for a baby. Or, why does the approval of certain people matter so much to you? They can make or break your day with a single look or a single sentence. Why do they have such power? You're hoping for something from them. What is it? See, we're all creatures of hope. We can't escape from it. Hope is so powerful, we need it. And what we're going to say today is that Easter provides it. Easter provides it. For 2,000 years, the Christian church has testified at Easter that our greatest needs as human beings have been met and satisfied fully in Jesus Christ. On Good Friday, we think about the cross, how Jesus went into the darkness, how he was torn apart, how he paid our debts, how he met all our needs fully at the cross. And now on Easter Day, we proclaim that he rose from the dead, literally, bodily, and therefore we have hope. Amen? Christianity is built on hope. Christians believe that our hope is sure and certain because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Pastor Sam Albury, writer, says this, this sort of hope makes living possible because it gives us a future. See, the resurrection gives the Christian believer a hope that you can build a life on. And to the degree that this is real to your heart, friends, you can be set free from fear and despair right now. To the degree that it is real to your heart. I'm not just talking about believing it intellectually. I mean, this being real to your heart means you can be set free from fear and despair right now. And today we are thinking about two reasons this hope is so strong. Firstly, the hope is guaranteed. Secondly, the hope is personal. It's guaranteed and it's personal. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians again. Open your Bible if you've closed it. 1 Corinthians 15 begins. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. That's good news, great news. The gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. And by this gospel you are saved. And then he says, verse 3, he tells us the things that are of first importance. And fusion, are you still here? 
Fusion, are you still here? They're waving, they're not shouting. Okay, Fusion, this is question one. What is the gospel? Here's the things of first importance. These are really, really important things. One, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Two, that he was buried. So we know he was dead. Three, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And four, that he appeared. Four things of very, very first importance. One of them is that Christ rose from the dead, literally, physically, bodily. And not only did he rise, but the fourth one, he was seen. And then look down at the list there of all the witnesses. They all get named. Now, it's quite interesting. In the gospel accounts, say the book of Mark, the end of the book, uh, the eyewitnesses are women showing the importance of women in the ministry of Jesus and the future importance of women in the Christian church. But women's testimony wasn't uh, accepted in the courts, the legal system of the first century. So in this list, he only names the, one, the, the witnesses that would be accepted in the courts of the first century, which are the male witnesses. And here he says, Cephas, that's another name for Peter. He saw him, he was one of the first in there. And then he appeared to the twelve, that's the, the, the apostles, the closest disciples. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That means they've died. They didn't just fall asleep. They popped their clogs. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. So he's giving a big list. And the thing about this list, by the way, is that these appearances of Jesus Christ took place at different times. They weren't all at the same moment. They were spread out over a period of 40 days. They were in different places. They were to different people. Some people saw him more than once. Sometimes it was a one-on-one, sometimes it was in a group setting, sometimes it was a large group, there's more than 500. So this, this, what he's doing is discounting the idea that this could have been like a hallucination or uh, wishful thinking, you know, like somebody sees the abominable snowman, you know, what lives in the Himalayas, is seven foot tall and does 300 sit-ups a day, the abdominal snowman. No one's really seen him. But everybody saw Jesus. And he's saying, I can, I can name all these people. And the reason why you can say that is that at this point, when this letter was written, 1 Corinthians, a lot of them were still alive. Because he says, most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. So you can go and check, if you like. This is, this is written down for pe- because people could say, I saw him. I testified to that. It's very powerful. He's giving this evidence. Now, this is very critical, isn't it, for such a bold claim. Anybody in their right mind is going to ask, where is the evidence? And the evidence is the eyewitness testimony and the empty tomb. This means that we know Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he came to do. The resurrection, then, is God's signature on the package. It's delivered. But eyewitness accounts don't silence all the questions, do they? Eyewitness accounts, even if people are swearing blind they saw it, they don't answer all our questions. So Paul carries on. And one of the main objections to Christian faith is that it's basically wishful thinking. You know, many people in our society would view Christian faith or all religious faith as projection for people who are basically quite needy. You're projecting your hopes and your fears onto something and then you believe it. It's not really true. Now, the interesting thing about this, 1 Corinthians, one of the earliest letters that's written within living memory of the events, 
is that we find Paul is engaging with people who are objecting to the resurrection and saying it couldn't happen. This is probably within 20, 25 years of it, of it happening. People are already objecting, so this is nothing new. Uh, this is because obviously people don't rise from the dead every day. Now, at the very least, that should warn us against the assumption that ancient people were just more gullible than modern people, something called chronological snobbery. Ancient people weren't uh, necessarily more gullible than you and I. And it also warns us against simply believing whatever our current cultural moment tells us is acceptable, also known as groupthink. Sociologists study religion and all around the world, different kinds of religion, and they find that when a religion is very, very much in the majority, it's very hard for it to attract new people because people generally believe what the majority think. And then when a religion is massively in the majority, it's very hard for someone to leave that religion because people believe what the group thinks. And what the Bible is telling us is stop just believing what the group thinks. Start looking at the truth claims for yourself. Now, in first century Greece... People went wrong about the resurrection. They said it couldn't possibly have happened. Not because of modern reasons, interestingly, but because of their own cultural groupthink. And in the first century, they believed that the body, the physical life, was basically inferior and kind of dirty. It was second class. And that the really, really um, good and the life to be sought after and, and the spiritual would be free from the body. It's like a prison, cast it away and go and float off as a spirit. Their culture had a negative view of the body in the physical world. So that made any teaching about a resurrection seem kind of bizarre and unnecessary. Why would you want to raise the body from the dead? The future's all about spirits. It just seemed absolutely implausible to them. So they assumed that there couldn't possibly be a resurrection from the dead. And Paul deals with it Head on. Look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, as in it could never happen, then not even Christ has been raised. If you're saying that a priori, before any evidence has been looked at, it couldn't possibly be true, then Christ isn't raised. And then verse 14, the implication of that, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith, Christians. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. What he's saying here is that if Christ Jesus was not raised from the dead, Christian preaching is useless, it is false. The gospel is fake news. The apostles have got it wrong. Their teaching is a pack of lies. They are witnesses who gave false testimony in court. Now, why is this so severe? Because Christianity has a special relationship with history, with facts. What Christians believe is bound up with particular historical events. This isn't true for every belief system. It wouldn't be true, for example, of Buddhism or much of Hinduism. But it is true for Christianity. This faith is grounded in history. And Paul shows then how personally serious this is for him in verses 31 to 32. If I face death every day, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? In other words, I've risked my life. I bet my life on the fact that Jesus really rose. I've thrown everything in. 
He actually risked his life. He was eventually killed for it. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it's a complete load of nonsense. Now, there's a second implication back to uh, verse 16 to 19. Fusion, you're on question three now. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what would be the big problem? Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus is still dead, then Christians have got some big problems. Your faith is futile. There is such a thing as futile faith, something that is worthless. It is possible to be sincere, but to be sincerely wrong, isn't it? Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Everyone who died, who believed in Jesus, they're gone. There's no hope. They're just in the ground. We never see them again. They're lost. And that means that if we're putting our hope in this, we, we are pitiable. Pitiable. Sam Albury, in his excellent book on the resurrection, Lifted, talks about Jenga. You know that game? You get all those wooden blocks, you stack them up, and then you've got to take out the blocks carefully, and there's always someone that tries to pull one out from the bottom, isn't there? You know, and then it all falls. Sam Albury talks about theological Jenga. What if you pull this block out of the bottom of the tower of Christian belief? Here's what he says. If Christ is still dead and buried, there's no point to being a Christian. Sincerity makes no difference. We may sincerely believe that God loves and accepts us because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because Jesus taught that his death would be our ransom. But if his death was the end of it, we have no reason to think that he achieved anything. There's been no victory over sin. There is no forgiveness with God. There is no future hope. Death still reigns. But Paul continues in verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And the reason he gives here is that this is God's way of dealing with humanity. Death came into the human race through our first parents, through the first man, Adam. The first original human pair, brought death into the world. It was not part of God's original design. Death is an intruder. Death is our great enemy. It's not our friend. And now, resurrection from the dead comes through one man, the final Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. There's a symmetry to this. Death came into the world through one man, and now resurrection, new life, comes into the world through one man, the final Adam, Jesus Christ. In other words, just as Adam was the start of the entire human race, Jesus Christ is the start of an, an entire new human race. The first of many. And he uses an image here drawn from the world of agriculture, from farming. He describes the raising of Jesus as the first fruits. The first fruits. Now, we live in the London suburb. There are not many farmers here, although there are farms pretty nearby. But the first fruits would be well known to the readers of this because the first fruits is the first bit of a harvest. It's the first bit that comes up. And it's really precious because the farmer knows the harvest is coming. We just got that first few stalks of, of wheat or grain. We know that the rest is coming. 
We're going to have a harvest. We're going to be able to eat. We're going to be able to live. Life is coming because of that first fruits. It guarantees it. The rest is coming. And the resurrection of Jesus, it says here, is the first fruits. It's the guarantee and the display of what is to come for all of us who trust him. Fusion, you're doing really well. Question four, what is the great news and hope for Christians? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Answer, it's that it's a guarantee for every Christian that we will rise too. It's the first of many. And all of this is built on those historical foundations and that eyewitness stuff that we considered earlier. The tomb, the testimony. Now we see why they keep emphasizing that it really happened. Because the whole building of Christian belief stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus like the foundations. And as he rose, so will all his people. As he rose, so will all his people. Verse 23. Each in turn. Christ, he's the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Therefore, when we talk about Christian hope being guaranteed, we're not talking about the kind of hopes we have all the time. Like, I really hope it's going to be a sunny bank holiday. I've got no control over that. I really hope I can have a, a good holiday this summer. Well, I can plan, but I can't really control it. This is a hope that is absolutely secure. It's strong. It's living. Apostle Peter wrote these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you're a Christian, you've been born again into a hope, a new hope, comes through the resurrection. This hope is built on events that have happened, and because they have happened, the Christian's hope is secure. It's a living hope. It has a life of its own. This hope can withstand and endure all the worst experiences of your life because it is not dependent on you. This hope is not dependent on your feelings. It's not dependent on your performance. It's guaranteed. It's given to you. The hope is guaranteed. First point. Second point and final. Getting off easy today, guys. Second point. The hope is personal. The hope is personal. What is the most personal thing about you? Well, I think it's your body. It's yours. It's you. I can't take that away from you. The resurrection hope is bodily hope. It's embodied. Now, I wonder what comes into your mind when somebody talks about heaven, mentions the word heaven. There's a stereotype, isn't there, of a hazy realm of blue skies, pretty clouds, and rose-cheeked, winged babies playing harps. To others, heaven isn't that. It is quite vague, but it's definitely populated with nice friends and family who have gone before, maybe all dressed in white, having a drinks party, waiting for you. But we're never really sure what heaven will be like or what we would be doing. Do you remember the Christmas carol, Once in Royal David's City? Not in that poor lowly stable With the oxen standing by 
We shall see him but in heaven, set at God's right hand on high, where like stars his children crowned, all in white shall wait around. Shall wait around. <laughs> so, we won't see him here, we'll see him in heaven, he's crowned, he's great. His children are there, they're like stars. What are they doing? They're wearing white. Cool. What else are they doing? Well, they're just waiting around, you know. <laughs> oh, Paddy, you're here too. They'll let anyone in. <laughs> what are you doing? Just waiting. Yeah, yeah, we're waiting around, yeah. I mean, what are we going to be doing? Some people imagine heaven as an endless church service. And they sincerely hope they won't end up in it. <laughs> and I like singing as much as the next bloke. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, we find a very powerful point about Christian hope. It is really personal because it is an embodied future. Back to the main point again. As Jesus rose, so will all his people. As Jesus rose physically, so will all his people. We'll rise physically. Now, of course, at once, all sorts of questions start to come into your mind. What kind of body are we talking about? You know, do I get to put in a request? Will I look like Kendall Jenner? I hope not. What stage of my life will it be? You know, I reached my prime quite a few years ago. Will I have a six-pack? Will I have glasses? What about my teeth? I mean, we think about all these things, don't we? Now, Paul anticipates our curiosity, by the way, in verses 35 to 36. Have a look back there. He says, but someone will ask. That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Everyone's going to ask this. <laughs> but someone will ask. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Here's the answer. How foolish. <laughs> How foolish. Well, that might seem a little bit harsh. But he's warning against idle speculation. It is silly to worry about it. But it is not silly to reflect on the positive teaching about the resurrection body that we get here. And there are three things that he says you've got to look at. Firstly, you look at nature. Then you look at Jesus, and then you look at the contrasts. Firstly, nature. Look at verse 36. Uh, look at nature. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just the seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So he's talking about sowing seed. And when you sow something, whether it's uh, crops or flowers, what you sow doesn't grow until the seed dies, does it? You know, when you buy some seed and put it in the ground and bury it and cover it, and maybe you stamp it down a bit, that seed dies. That seed is not going to come out again. But out of it grows something much greater. There's an oak tree at the end of our garden, just in the field behind, that we reckon is about 180 years old. All autumn, that oak tree is dropping acorns on top of my office. The odd branch. But it grew out of one of them. An acorn. 
The seed is not going to come out again. It's going to die, but out of it will come something much greater. In other words, the seed must die before new life can come. Paul says death is a condition of resurrection. Our bodies will die before being raised to new physical life. And in verse 37, he continues, what you get out isn't the same as what you put in. Here's verse 37. Uh, When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Paul mentions wheat here. I think every child has grown cress at some point, haven't they? And every parent here has had some kids bring some cress seeds home in a thing with a bit of cotton wool and pray that it doesn't die before they have to take it back to school and maybe make a cress sandwich or something. Probably not allowed to these days because of health and safety. You know, Don't eat the cress. Someone will be allergic to it. <laughs> but it grew out of those tiny little seeds. The seeds are absolutely tiny. You can barely see them. They bear no resemblance to what will grow. A carrot, you know what a carrot looks like? A carrot seed isn't like a really, really small carrot. It just doesn't even look like it. But God, it says in verse 38, has given to each the body that he has determined. Verse 38, God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. So God decides what kind of bodies we're going to get. And in verses 39 to 41, he says, think about bodies, think about creatures, look about the body of a fish or bird or any kind of animal or the heavenly bodies, the stars, the sun. God knows what he's doing when it comes to giving the right body to the right things. It's been lovely to see the sun out the last couple of days. The sun, you can't even bear to look at it with your naked eyes for risk of harm. It's so powerful. God has given that body to the sun. We've also had a lot of rain recently, which means that snails are walking around in the garden. And I just can't bear stepping on a snail. I don't know whether you're the same. A friend of mine here called Bryn said, the thing about stepping on a snail is you kill a creature in its own home. (laughs) You know, as soon as he said that, I was even more afraid of doing it. (laughs) Trying to get down to the study. Every now and then, as it, (laughs) I'm like, oh, sorry. God gave a snail a certain type of body. I was sitting on the step recently, and I saw a snail down there, and it's coming right over the shell. It's got these long horns. It's kind of weird looking, actually. It's long horns coming out. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you looking for? I'm not going to catch anything. A bit slow. God gave the body to the snail and the body to the sun. If they were flipped around, life would be very different. You'd be walking down, you'd step on a very small sun. Ah! And in the sky will be an enormous snail coming down to you. God knows what he's doing. He gives the right bodies to the right things. Do you think that the creator will struggle to find you the right body at the resurrection? Come on. Look at nature. Secondly, look at Jesus. If we will rise physically just as Jesus did, he's the first fruits, what do we learn from his risen body? There was continuity. Jesus had a recognizable face and voice. He walked You could touch him, he could touch you. He ate and drank, he cooked breakfast for his friends on the beach. There seems to have been some scarring. As he said to Thomas, look at my hands and my side. It was Jesus, continuity. But there was also discontinuity. His nature seemed to be different from what it was before. Jesus could enter into a room though the doors were locked. He seemed to be able to appear and disappear as if he was coming from another dimension. He was not bound by the same physical limits as us. His body had changed 
And Paul says it would no longer age and decay. This body will last forever. Now that, if you look at Jesus, is an indication of what we have to look forward to, Christian friends. This body will be recognizably and authentically you, but a transformed you. Paul even says it will be a glorious body. Now what kinds of changes would there be? He gives us a set of contrasts. Verses 42 to 44, it will go from being perishable to imperishable. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. You know that light bulbs have built-in obsolescence? They could make light bulbs that last a lot longer, but they build in obsolescence. So a light bulb just eventually goes, and then you have to buy a new one. I've heard that kettles have built-in obsolescence as well. They certainly do around here, because of the amount of scale. So do our bodies. They only function for a limited time. Then they start to wear out, don't they? They start to decay. They start to die. They have a shelf life. Maybe some of us are getting very conscious of slowing down. Everything aches now. But the resurrection body is imperishable. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't decay. It doesn't get sick. It doesn't die. Secondly, it goes from being dishonorable to glorious. Verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. Now, we all know that we've used our bodies for dishonorable purposes, sadly, haven't we? We've used our lips to say things that should not have been said. We've used our hands to do things, our eyes to look at things, our ears to listen to things. We've used the parts of our body. We've offered those parts like instruments to sin, in this life. These parts of our body have been used for wicked things. Our bodies have suffered because of sin in other ways too. We've been bruised by other people. We've misused our bodies ourselves. Our bodies are dishonorable now. But the new body will be raised in glory. It won't bear the marks and memories of sin. It will shine. Third contrast. From weak too powerful. He says it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Can I ask you to put your hand up if you're on medication at the moment? A lot of us. All right, keep your hand up. Let me ask you if you've used medication in the last month. Yep. You're a pretty sickly group. <laughs> Our bodies are so weak. Whether we're talking about illness or infection or allergies or disabilities or various physical ailments, we're so weak, we're so weak, we spend one third of our lives sleeping. Man! <laughs> if you live to 60, you've spent 20 years having a kip. Not so the new body, it will be raised in power, he says. It will not be weak and limited. Our strength will be renewed and we will soar like eagles. Even young men will grow weary and tired, but not those who wait on the Lord. They will rise on wings like eagles. It's powerful. Final contrast, it's from natural to spiritual, he says. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Now obviously this body is still physical. Jesus ate fish and all the rest of it. But it will not belong to the current realm of nature. Our body at the moment is made from the dust of this fallen world. 
It's the appropriate vessel for this kind of life. But the resurrection body will be spiritual. That is to say it will be supernatural. It will be the perfect vessel for glorifying God in a new creation, a physical creation. The very best of technology in this world can't come anywhere close to this. People are trying to live forever by freezing their bodies and waiting for a time when they can wake them up. My goodness, what a thought. It would be like a bad zombie movie. This body that he's talking about will be fit for a new order of things in a renewed creation, a whole new world. Pastor Tim Keller says, you see, there's a real you, a true self down inside you, but then there are all the flaws and weaknesses that bury and mar and hide it. But the Christian hope is that the love and holiness of God will burn that all away, and on that day when we rise, we will look at each other and say I always knew you could be like this I saw glimpses of it I saw flashes of it now look at you because we too will be glorified the Bible says the Christian hope is guaranteed and it's personal it's embodied now if the knowledge of this future was always present in our minds would we be as anxious and downcast as we are? If the knowledge of this future was always present in our minds, would we think about payback and resenting people who had wronged us so much when we know that God is guaranteeing that we will get far more than we can possibly imagine? If the knowledge of this future was so present that we were living in this hope, why would we ever envy another person all things are yours this hope if you grasp it is transforming in the year 1899 two famous men died in America one was an unbeliever he made a career out of debunking the Bible and arguing against Christian teaching the other was a Christian preacher the unbeliever's name was Colonel Robert Ingersoll. He died suddenly, and his death was an unmitigated shock to his family. Ingersoll's body was kept in the home for several days because his wife just couldn't bear to part with it. It was finally removed because the corpse was decaying and the health of the family required it. She just couldn't let him go. At length, his remains were cremated, and the scene at the crematorium was so dismal that even it was picked up by the newspapers and communicated to the nation at large. Ingersoll had used his great mind to deny the resurrection. But when death came, there was no hope. His departure was received by his relatives and friends as an uncompensated tragedy. That same year, a great preacher called Dwight Moody died, but Moody's death was triumphant for himself and for his family. Moody had been declining in health for some time. The family took turns to be with him. And on the morning of his death, his son was standing by the bedside and heard him exclaim, Earth is receding, heaven is opening, God is calling. You're dreaming, Dad, the son said. No will. He replied, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. 
And for a while it seemed as if Moody were reviving again, but he began to slip away. He said, is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. And by this time his daughter was in the room as well, and she started to pray for him to recover. And he said, no, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I've been looking forward to it. And shortly after that, Moody was received into heaven. At the funeral, the family and friends joined in a service that was full of joy. They spoke, they sang hymns, they heard these words proclaimed, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Dwight Moody's death was a little part of that victory. And so can your death be. Death can be victorious for a Christian. There is hope in the resurrection. Let's pray. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Um,